So tonight's talk is um, at least the beginning of the Ten Perfections, the uh, qualities that the Buddha, uh, in his own life and or many lives, um, sought out to perfect or come to uh, the highest kind of uh, practice. And uh, then gave it as a teaching of how we also, it's just another road to awaken and what this means. So the ten perfections, um, they're a lot of times attached to stories of the Buddha's past lives and they're kind of like, you know, they're like... uh, Fables. Uh, one story: the Buddha was a parrot, and the parrot saved, you know, all the uh, all of the other animals in the forest by scooping up water and like going to douse the flame, you know, for it until its wings burned and then it died. And this was generosity, and, you know, courage, and you know, it's another story, and you know, so there's lots of kind of animal-like stories. And they're really great for children. Yeah. They're called... I uh, <laughs> can't remember what they're called. But there's some really great stories. It'll come to me. What they're called. But uh, they're also... The, the Ten Perfections are also known as the Paramis. Yeah. Oh, Jataka Tales. They're known as the Jataka Tales. Uh, all of the kind of ways in which the ten perfections have uh, been played out lifetime after lifetime. So I'm going to kind of just go through, I mean, it's really, it's just a list. It's a list of things that we already know that we talk about in all of these other ways uh, and all of the other teachings of the Buddha. But specifically, uh, it's given as a list of uh, qualities that we can increase and uh, practice and come to perfection. So I'll definitely get through a few of them today. So generosity, right, giving, uh, is the first. And there actually is an order um, as to uh, the, the uh, I believe, when I was studying this, the order goes that the Buddha started with the, those that are the easiest to the most difficult. So the first is giving, dana, generosity. And the last is uh, equanimity, balance, perfection of balance, perfection of equanimity being uh, the most difficult. And generosity being uh, the most, maybe I would, I guess I would say accessible. So, giving. So the relinquishing um, is to dispel greed. You know, so this giving is like relinquishing greed. So it's getting rid of greed. Of greed. This kind of covetousness. The manifestation is non-attachment. So what that means is like what we're working on is can we. Uh, give like with an open hand, 
without greed attached to it. Sometimes, you know, uh, uh, we're taught in this culture that, you know, you give and then you receive, but what you receive has to equal what you give, and if it doesn't, then there's some jealousy or some anger or some, uh, I don't know. So, uh, the practice of giving. And that there's a lot of uh, thought of that around it gladdens the heart. Uh, And I don't know if you... I definitely have gotten this way. I didn't used to, but uh, started to really, I start, I, like when I get into, into giving gifts or when I really get into it, I like, I'm like excited about it before they even like, before I even like wrap it. Sometimes I don't even wrap things. I'm just like, you know, and I used to like just drop like gifts off to my mom or my sister or like loved ones or whatever. And then just like leave, you know, like I didn't really want to, I didn't really want to have them even know. I used to be like a gift bandit. I would just like leave gifts somewhere and then leave, and then not take any credit for it. And actually, one of my um, one of my teachers and, and uh, a mentor of mine said, "Like, dude, you're robbing them of the opportunity to be grateful. You're robbing them of the opportunity to uh, uh, really have a connection." And so I started to kind of, even though it was uncomfortable, I started to kind of stay with it a little longer. And, um, and it made a big difference. Yeah, I started to notice that uh, there was this whole pre-kind of excitement and then the, the exchange and then the like not wanting of anything other than just to be in the gladness of generosity. I think... It, the the dropping off and leaving might have had something to do with like if my sister didn't like a gift or something she would like have a harsh you know she'd be like I, whatever you know my uncle definitely he was very critical this is the wrong size you know so I think maybe like in conditioning that's why that happened but I started to kind of really feel that um, the non attachment in the giving uh, and. It's one of the values, actually, in Buddhism that I just really cherish. And it's one of the reasons why uh, we have such a strong uh, understanding of dana in this center. Many centers uh, throughout the United States, that actually they actually charge. You, know, you go, you pay a certain amount. If you want to go to a day long, you pay a certain amount of money. Or you go to a retreat, you, know, you have to pay a certain amount of money. Um, or you even come to a group, there's a donation uh, Kind of request, uh, and I'm not—I don't have a real judgment about that. But that's—that's that's not uh, the way that the Buddha taught. That the Buddha taught about generosity and the rest and reciprocity coming from within, and so uh, that's where we have these baskets, and we really rely on uh, the cultivation of that generosity. so I could get lost in each one of these for a little while and then we'll only get through a couple which is fine because now I have this story so I was in Thailand and I was uh, contemplating ordaining as a monk for a time and I went to this uh, Wat Pananachat which is a western monastery in northeastern Thailand so it's way kind of far from all the uh, touristy stuff and um Stayed in this monastery for a time, Ajahn Chah's monastery. 
And so I was there and I was like, you know, maybe I'll just do, I like did the whole thing, like shaved the head, shaved the eyebrows, took on the white robes. I was like, really? I was doing 10 precepts. I was really thinking about it. And um, so I was there for a time. And then there was this big hubbub that was going on that I didn't really know about. It was Ajahn Chah's like birthday. Ajahn Chah had died in like the 87, 88. But uh, uh, they still celebrated you know, him every year. And all these monks came to the monastery. And actually it was like, I don't even know how many miles down the street uh, was this other big monastery that was Ajahn Chah's first monastery. So long story short, thousand monks and nuns and 3,000 lay people came for this event to celebrate this Thai meditation master who had died, you know, 25 years prior or something like that, 20 years prior. And uh, so there, out of the, so the 3,000 people, uh, lay people, practitioners, all brought food, right? So everything was free. There was like massages and massage oils and there was this and that and everything was free. And there was such beauty in the giving and receiving of everything. It was kind of like, I guess, you know, what people say that, um, that thing that's in the desert, Burning Man is kind of like, that there's like this giving quality that's there. I might go this year, I'm not sure. Um, but anyway, and it was so uplifting. It was so I was overwhelmed by the uh, the generosity. It just to, it took me over. I had to go like sit under a tree and just cry because I was so like moved by the 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 joy that people had. Uh, and it was you know, and, and I'm sure it wasn't like that all day, every day for all these people, but for this one event and serving the monks and nuns and. Everyone coming together, and it was just beautiful, and it was uh, a really clear uh, understanding of the quality of generosity for me. So the Buddha, in having this be the first of the ten perfections, was really also really clear. Like we can practice this every day, you know, even even the, I mean the smallest way of being generous, right? And I know we don't, I don't, don't need to give the examples, you know. Even just like letting someone cut you off, just you know, I'm being generous to you by letting you cut me off and not flipping out or being mad about it, or opening a door or you know, giving money to a homeless person or whatever, you know, whatever the thing is. So that's that's a way that we can. Always be kind of working on keeping the heart open. It's the other thing about generosity. You know, the opposite is greed or covetousness, right? So, I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, when we're feeding greed, there is immediately a yours and mine, there's a separation. And there's a hardening, uh, a protective quality. I think even true around love, like my love. And I choose to give it or not give it, you know, can be uh, interesting. Our covetousness, you know, that's your whatever the thing is. Or 
Uh, I even see that around relationships sometimes. Oh, I see your relationship and how that's not my relationship. And then there's the separation. And uh, there can be fear and, you know, just all kinds of jealousy and all kinds of stuff that comes up around it. So just another way to kind of think about uh, giving. So the, the second of the, uh, the potamis or the potamitas is virtue. So virtue is, is one way to say it. Uh, ethics is another way. Ethical integrity is another way. I, I prefer ethical integrity, but you know, in the list it says virtue. And that's just probably stuff from me being raised Christian and feeling like pure. There's like some some of the words in uh, in in some of the suttas, the the monastic kind of uh, handed down teachings, are very kind of puritanical. They they are, um, and it's interesting to see actually because some of it. Uh, may just be mistranslation from a Western, because most of it, most of it was uh, translated by British scholars, um, you know, thousands of years after the Buddha died. So, uh, anyway, so virtue or ethics. So it, its function is uh, blameless conduct, and the Buddha talked about this often. Actually, talked about. Um, be blameless in the world. That that is freedom, actually. Freedom from suffering is to be blameless. And there's some like blameless and stainless, like the idea of um, I do nothing to cause harm, uh, and then I have no kind of guilt or remorse because of my uh, actions in the world. So that's 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 part of it. So blameless conduct. So and its manifestation again. Uh, just you know, think about this as you will. Is this manifestation is moral purity? See. So shame and or moral dread are its uh, proximate cause. But I really do prefer ethical integrity. But I do feel like it's important to use this language because um, there is something to it, you know. When we act in a way that is um, outside of ethical integrity, that we have some uh, karmic repercussion that happens in the mind. It does. That's been my experience. That's been countless people's experience. And this meditation practice... This is why uh, uh, the Buddha actually taught generosity and ethical integrity before meditation. And saying, learn how to be generous and open-hearted. Learn how to live in a way where you're not causing harm. And then meditate. And it will be a lot easier. But we have it a little bit backwards in this country. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just the the way that it's been packaged. Partially because we have so many kind of, you know, uh, maybe uh, undertones of the puritanical kind of Christian, you know, stuff about it. So meditation looks good, but don't talk to me about, you know, 
morals and virtue and purity because that just makes me cringe too. You know? mm-hmm. yeah. But uh, there is something to it, you know, that uh, uh, our actions, whether healthy or unhealthy, skillful or unskillful, have repercussion. For every action, there is a positive or negative reaction that occurs both within us and out into the world. And it's not about blame. It's not about wrong. And it's just about missing the mark so much. That's what I think. So I I use a particular um, form of the precepts. And this is what the Buddha uh, prescribed as the uh, way to live blamelessly in the world. And so this translation is a little bit Thich Nhat Hanh and a little bit uh, rebellious Dharma Punk style. So seeing how deeply our lives intertwine is the kind of beginning of each of these precepts. And it's basically, I mean, the reason why I choose that is because we're not just doing this for our own benefit. It is for our own benefit. But it's also to see that, I, you know, uh, the way that I walk in the world affects other people as well. So seeing how deeply our lives intertwine and how other people's actions affect us, you know. I undertake the precept to protect life. So this, I lo- well, the reason why I like this twist is because it's positive. It's not like I won't kill anything. Because that's been some of the language. But so undertaking the precepts to protect life uh, means do no harm. It goes with, I mean, it's, in, in a, it's actually in every religion. By the way, I was just inspired to watch this documentary uh, with one voice. And it's good. Yeah, I, I had, had seen it before, but I forgot. And uh, a few of my teachers are actually in, in the video. And um, so it's on Netflix. And it's, it's a good way of seeing the links between many uh, uh, religious backgrounds, although it's pretty interesting. There's not a whole lot around uh, Christian uh, religion. There's some Christian mystic. and Brother uh, David Stein Rolfs, who is just an amazing person, Benedictine monk, so that's cool. So any religion that you look at really has these kind of you know moral uh, codes. Except for Buddhism, doesn't call them moral codes, but really calls them precepts uh, and uh, choices to cause suffering or to not cause suffering. So, undertake the precept to protect life. So I, one of the reasons I like, like that is because I feel like it, what, it, what it is saying is, and I've talked about this a few weeks ago, like um, if there is some harm being committed out in the world, it might mean intervene. You know, It might mean to intervene. Uh, and I, I believe in that. I don't believe that um, Buddhism or the Buddha was a pacifist at all. The Buddha was a revolutionary. And he actually spoke out against injustice all the time. And uh, had many threats against his life. People actually tried to kill him numerous times. Because of his revolutionary action. 
So the second is seeing how deeply our lives intertwine. I undertake the precept of not stealing or taking that which is not offered. Again, this is a protection to me. Um, both uh, being a former thief <laughs> and knowing what that actually does feel like when you can feel it. Um, it sucks. And it causes distrust. Discord. Both, you know, I mean, I remember uh, being not trusted by anyone. Because everyone knew. <laughs> Don't leave your stuff sitting around. Jason was there. And then I knew that about other people, too, and I didn't trust them. So that's why I love about being on retreats, actually. And when I worked with teens um, on these teen retreats, and there would be, like, iPods and backpacks and just things laying around because they all felt safe. And maybe, and then many of them just talked about that the precepts were the, actually the things that were they enjoyed the most, like not the meditation and not the you know the vegetarian food and not the, you know it wasn't those things that they but the the fact that they actually really felt held and safe mm-hmm. by the precepts and I think it's very important. Yeah. And then I often think, oh, what would it be like if the whole if we just felt that way throughout the world? You know, we didn't have fear of our stuff being taken if we all just agreed. You know, but we can do our part by not stealing or not taking what is not offered. So, seeing how deeply our lives intertwine, I undertake the precept to not lie and speak truth with kindness. So, I particularly like the truth with kindness part. Because I think it's important to challenge sometimes. But we don't have to do it in such a way that it's harsh or that it uh, is pushing down or oppressing. You know, it doesn't have to be oppressive. Uh, sometimes feel like it's this, I'm right, you're wrong. Uh, and I'm not into that. So this, uh, this piece around, around speech is actually uh, very difficult. Um, so I found <laughs> and uh, a great place to practice yeah. when we uh, actually there's so Joseph Goldstein who is a, a teacher in this tradition uh, talked about taking the priest that really taking this precept on and taking it on in the way of like not speaking about anyone ever that wasn't in his presence and he said he talked a lot less mm-hmm. So can you imagine if you didn't didn't ever talk about anyone that wasn't right in front of you or in the group that you're talking about? What that would be like. So seeing how deeply our lives intertwine, I undertake the precept of being wise and careful with my sexual energy. You know what's interesting uh, is recently, uh, well, I gave a talk on Buddhism and sex not that long ago, and so you could refer to that online. Um, if you want to, on this on our website, we record these talks. So this thing about wise and careful with our sexual energy, I, again, it's around doing no harm to ourselves, to others. How much harm has been caused by sexual misconduct? You know, I mean, we see it in the news and sex addicts and, you know, Tiger Woods and, you know, this person and that person and, you know, power and control, manipulation. 
even as a teacher, you know, uh, this is a lot around as a layperson, um, and not to call the yoga the yoga community out a whole lot, but you know, they they've blown it quite a lot for a long time, and um, it's a lot of the reason why. I mean, other than the fact that within the Buddhist tradition, um, you know, in Asia and whatnot. You know, monks are celibate, and so there is no real kind of lay teacher. Uh, and so, as that began to happen here, uh, there, the, the ethical integrity piece was pretty strong. And even still, you know, within Buddhism, there's, there's. I was just at this, uh, Gen, this Gen X teachers conference, and this was a huge topic, like Buddhism and sex, and like how do you talk about it, and how do you talk about it from a non-celibate perspective, and how do you engage in a way of non-harming that isn't about. Um, Promoting, you know, whatever sexual violence or misconduct, but at the same time honoring sexuality. You know, how do you do that? And there was a lot of like, I don't know, because the Buddha just took a really, you know, kind of solid stand. It's a, a super powerful <laughs> energy, and uh, your best to just to just not deal with it. <laughs> if you want to get enlightened, just don't deal with it. I don't, I don't necessarily know if, uh, uh, if that works for me. Matter of fact, that's the reason I, I actually didn't become a monk. It wasn't just sexual energy, but the idea of like uh, not fulfilling that part of my like just cutting that part of my life off. And I had some interesting conversations with some of the monks uh, at this conference, and um, some were monat- some were celibate, some were not celibate, and we were talking about this precept. That the precept isn't about sex or not sex. It's about not doing harm with our sexual energy. And that's kind of no-brainer. Yet it happens. And again, all of these... Um, all of these uh, precepts are suggestions. And they are not... Uh, you're, you're not going to burn in some kind of moral hell if you backslide or something that actually my favorite uh, way of thinking about this now comes from a Zen teaching around archery and that uh, in Kendo they practice uh, archery to hit the bullseye to hit the mark and that these are the bullseye and that we in our life are practicing to land in that center and it may take a while, and we may mess up, and and that's the way it goes. Uh, but it's a it's a, a ethical uh, bullseye that we do the best to adhere to, and that all are equally important. This is another thing we talked about recently around that uh, being wise and careful with our sexual with our sexual energy is actually as important as not stealing. It's like not, they're, they're not like, oh, well, that one is more, more serious and this one's not. No, the Buddha was really very clear. Like these five commitments are the way to freedom from suffering. That we will suffer less if we commit to these and follow them. And we will cause less suffering in the world. Guaranteed. 
and they're all important. So seeing how deeply our lives intertwine, I undertake the precept to not harm myself or others with intoxicants and be mindful in my consumption. So I actually changed that a little bit, right? Because not everyone in the world has a harmful relationship to drugs and alcohol. Although, drugs and alcohol have been known to cause quite a bit of harm. And what I really like about, I mean, because again, just like sex, the Buddha was pretty clear, like intoxicants, not helpful. They're not going to help you wake up. They're going to help you be asleep. Uh, and so how do you do that? You know, How do you engage in that way? Uh, and there's tons of intoxicants now. So mindful consumption um, is a way for, I think it's a way for us to begin to see, uh, is it harmful or not harmful? We actually had a debate in our teacher's council a while we did, we were reformulating the uh, the the precepts that are on our website, and um, you know Bob was Bob's very kind of hardcore. He's like, no, none of this mindful consumption stuff. Just like the Buddha was really clear, no intoxicants, and we need to adhere to that. And then the other there was the, some other people. I I called Bob out, but I'm not going to call the other people out. That were like. Um, <laughs> That were like, well, you know, I mean, that's saying, what if I drink a glass of wine? Is that saying that I'm breaking that precept? Yes. That's what it's saying. And know that and and be comfortable with it or not comfortable with it. Right. But to know, but, but that it's really very clear. And so uh, this mindful consumption part, it actually isn't part of our website. It's not part of our our center, but it is the way that I like to interpret it because I feel like uh, it's important for us to be mindful of all of our consumption and not just around drugs and alcohol. And I personally choose to not partake in intoxicants. See, but that, I mean, I use the internet. That's a huge intoxicant. I have an iPhone. Corrodes the mind. It's also extremely helpful. So how do you, you know, balance that? So this is uh, the first two. Giving and, uh, you know, Donna, generosity and mindful consumption. Rather, virtue or uh, ethical integrity. So let's just kind of stop there for a moment. And uh, any questions or kind of uh, things you're wondering about what I've talked about so far? Please. Um, so so I'm still con- Rachel, I'm still confused about um, this intoxicants thing because I, I don't understand what people are saying that the Buddha outlawed. Was he saying... Well, he didn't outlaw anything. Sorry. I don't understand what he... Specifically prescribed against, like mm-hmm. what he what he was saying, like, booze and hashish. Okay, so like your that's what, broad interpretation that we shouldn't use the internet is like a broad. Well, from not that we should, you know, from the two thousand five hundred and fifty six year old <laughs> understanding, there was none of that. Yeah, you know, 
So, so that, so, I mean, I, I'm saying, yeah, I think it's, I think what we need to do, and this is one of the things that the Buddha did teach, which is it, in every generation, or, you know, this is gonna ever, it's gonna grow. Be, be, uh, lamps unto yourself. You know, allow the Dharma to grow where it goes. Through time. It's why it's been, it's why here we are now, able to kind of look at, yeah, let's look at this fifth precept. And let's look at it around all the ways that we consume, you know, and be wise about it. Food, right? Uh, what, you know, sex, internet, um, you know, wh- whatever it is that, that can cloud the mind and lead us, uh, obviously away from, you know, blamelessness. So whatever clouds the mind, or are we talking about, because it doesn't necessarily, maybe I'm splitting hands, but... You are. Well, no, I'm not, I'm asking. (laughs) I didn't say don't ask, I just said you are. All right, okay, (laughs) yeah. So, what I'm saying is, are are we talking about things that get you high in order to avoid, or anything that Mm -hmm. makes you avoid? So in uh, certain monastic codes... Mm -hmm. uh, the listening to music or playing of music or reading of books that are not spiritually based um, is considered in this fifth precept. Interesting. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, that, you know, that could be what is being uh, talked about here. Now, I'm not a monk and you're not a monk. And so uh, we, and this is what I love about this precept. It's up to you. And it's saying, don't just throw it out, but actually look at it. What is my relationship to intoxicants? What intoxicates my mind? You know, What distracts me from what is true or from my practice or from spiritual progress? Does that make sense? No, that makes sense. Yeah. And, and I do, I throw in because, and this is why, because when I was in grad school, um, I got an Xbox 360. And I would uh, purposefully, actually it was probably the only reason why I got through grad school, but I would have this huge paper to write and I would not want to write my paper at all and I would want to play Xbox. I would distract my mind and it was like this, um, and I, I got really obsessed. I got like online, like I was like 10 year old kids, I'm like playing, like, and it was great. It was great, and it was intoxicating. And um, and I and I knew that I was aware of that, you know. Or like, uh, you know, just I, I I think I think the internet is a really it's a place, you know. There's tons of internet addiction now, and online gaming addictions, and you know this kind of avoiding what's present. Right. So that's why I kind of said that earlier. It's like in the larger scope of let's look at addiction. And what can we become addicted to? I, I didn't, sorry if I was harsh when I said you are splitting it. Yes? You know, I, I am intoxicated by music. Uh-huh. It really makes me drunk. It, yeah, it's intoxicating. It's the, the beauty of music mm-hmm. is enrapturing me. But the way I justify it, because it really takes me out of the clarity of my mind, mm. at least certain kinds of music, mm. other kinds put me into a very clear mind. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But at least I'm aware, uh, I, I try and justify it that I'm aware 
Yeah. And that makes sure. it okay. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I'd say in the scope of uh, harmful intoxication, it's pretty low. Pretty low on the totem pole, right? Well, unless, you know, I, I dwell constantly in music, just uh-huh. be in that state of rapture yeah. all the time. Yeah. See, yeah, so being a lover of punk rock, right, uh, my whole life, was about, it was fueled by this anger, angsty expression that I could really get into through music. And uh, it was very uh, freeing for a time, but then it became very destructive, right? And so I had to find that balance. Um, and like, yeah, so, you know, I think it's true for everyone, you know, that we have to find that balance. Which uh, reminds me that I'm actually going to a concert in a little while. And so uh, we're probably going to need to end. (laughs) So I am going to end here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.